not me, but I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, nor not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is it that Christians are so inconsistent? I mean, if Christians love the Bible so much, why don't they obey all of it? For example, you may know uh, Leviticus 19.19 says not to wear clothes made of two different kinds of material. And uh, Leviticus 19.27 says uh, don't cut the hair on the sides of your head or clip the edges of your beard. Christians just... Well, they can't just pick and choose. Either you accept the whole Old Testament or none of it. And here you sit in your cotton poly blends <laughs> with smooth chins, apart from Nick. Uh, and <laughs> how can that be? Uh, hi, my name's Chris, and let me add my welcome to the rest of those who've already said welcome to Uni Church. It's great to be here with you. Have you heard people talk like that? Have you heard them raise those kind of objections or questions? Have you wondered, as, as Christians now, what do we do with these strange Old Testament sort of laws? Do we ignore them? Should we try and obey them? People have often used these as examples to say that the Bible is outdated or irrelevant, or that the Bible's whole moral code is ridiculous. And if you shouldn't have to uh, keep some of those laws, well, why should you have to keep the other ones? If you're like me, sometimes things like that make us feel a little bit uneasy about the Old Testament. We're not always quite sure what to do with it. We know it's important, but since Jesus came, it feels, well, less, well, I don't want to say less relevant, and I I don't want to say less important, but it's less easy to know what to do with. So often we'll just look at the New Testament, or maybe some Psalms, and for all intents and purposes, often ignore the rest, especially the law. But if you're in any doubt, any doubt, as to what Jesus' attitude to the Old Testament law is, is to by that first verse that Matthew read out of the reading, Matthew 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is all for the Old Testament. He is not saying to abolish it. If that wasn't clear, he restates it in the next verse. For truly I tell you, until Heaven and earth disappear. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Here's a quick test. Look down. Look just down. 
is the earth there? If the answer is yes, then the Old Testament still applies. Not the smallest dot of an eye, not the least apostrophe will disappear as long as the earth spins, the law will remain, Jesus says. And not just will it remain, there's a warning. If you try and get rid of these laws, if you try to ignore them or even teach others to, well, that's not going to work out so good for you. Verse 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus isn't being ambiguous here. He has not come to abolish the law. He hasn't come to get rid of it. As long as the earth spins, it remains, and we mustn't try and get rid of it either. And then Jesus gives the reason. And it's a big reason. He says, for, indicating there's a reason to come, everything he set up to now supports this statement, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, just back up for a second and think about that. Now, righteousness and Pharisees may not be everyday words to us, but can you imagine someone who first heard Jesus preaching this in the Sermon on the Mount? Imagine a first century goat herd who's listening to this sermon. Now, he's just climbed up the mountain to hear Jesus, which is probably not a big deal. He's a goat herd. He goes up and down the mountains after goats all day, and most of us just chase Pokemon. But he's come up and he's heard Jesus bless the poor, which is nice because he's poor, and say things like, Blessed are the soil, and he prays the people who are the salt of the earth, which is a nice thing to hear. And then he hears that he will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven unless his righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and quietly he sinks into despair. Righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees? The Pharisees? How is he supposed to do that? He's just a goat herd, and the Pharisees... Well, they're the ones who are so into righteousness, they've gone pro. It's like, it's like saying you have to be a better mathematician than most rocket scientists if you want to get into heaven. Unless you cook better than Jamie Oliver, heaven is a no-go zone for you. No one gets into heaven unless they can outswim Michael Phelps. It's not even you have to be as good equivalent to a Pharisee. You have to surpass them. You have to beat them. Now, I don't know if you've ever met a Pharisee, but they were Olympic-level world champions at being righteous, at keeping the law. For example, uh, you may know that part of the Old Testament law said they, uh, the Israelite people had to tithe. They had to give 10%. And the Pharisees were so meticulous with it that when they were making dinner, and they go out into the garden and get a little bit of oregano or maybe some, some rosemary to put on their dinner, they would chop it up 
and measure it out and put 10% aside to give to the temple later. And then they would cook with the rest. They want to make sure they hit every bit of the law. That's not just what they earn, that's just from the spices they grew in their own gardens. How can it be? How can it be that Jesus says our righteousness must surpass that? That's been a big puzzle for lots of Christians over time, and there have been several attempts that people have made uh, to answer it. You may have looked up at these or heard some of these before. I'm going to list a couple of them quickly and point out some of the, I think, more obvious flaws, but just because there are flaws in the argument doesn't mean the arguments are ridiculous. I know lots of Bible-believing Christians that I look up to and admire who think some of these things. It's hard to work out this passage. Some have suggested, well, maybe Jesus is talking metaphorically, that you just have to metaphorically be better than the Pharisees in their righteousness. But he's not actually using picture language here. So how can it be metaphorical? Others have suggested that when Jesus says these things, you have to obey these commands, he's talking about the ones that he's about to go on and give in the rest of the chapter, things that we're going to look at next week. But that actually doesn't, doesn't really sit with the context. He's just been talking about the Old Testament law. Why even bring that up and say, no, abolish it, and then suddenly change topic without giving you a heads up? Others have thought, and it's an attractive way of thinking, well, is this spiritually? We have to have Jesus' righteousness, and if we have his holiness, which is the only real holiness that we can lay claim to, that maybe that's how we have greater righteousness than the Pharisees, because Jesus was more righteous than them. But why does Jesus go on then? to just for the next two and a half chapters say, do this, and do this, and do this, and do this. He gives a whole lot of other instructions of things he wants people to do. Or perhaps he's just overstating the case, knowing that, well, we might not be able to do it, but if we try to do better righteousness than the Pharisees and fail, we'll still get further than we would have otherwise. But that... That doesn't sound like Jesus, I know, to set people up for failure. So, how can we, how can we have greater righteousness than a Pharisee? Well, I have put up a line, and that's going to help us. Imagine that this line, you've been wondering about all the terms so far, haven't you? This line here is the options you have when you have to make a decision, when you're faced with a situation. The options on this side. Sorry for those on the recording. Are the good ones. These are positive things, but on this side are the negative ones. These are the bad. You want to do a good thing, you choose one of those options. A bad thing, you choose one of these options. This is the law. That tells you the dividing line, whether you know it's a good thing or a bad thing. So if you have something to do, and you make a choice on that side, you've done something that the law says is good, done something there, that on that side of the line, that's something that the law says is not so good. Bad. Simple. And Pharisees, Pharisees are expert at two things. One was staying on this side of the line. 
Pharisees always knew, uh, always worked hard to stay there. And the second was knowing exactly where that line was. See, if you're a Pharisee, you have that down to a fine art. How can you be sure to stay on that side of the line unless you know where the line is? And a Pharisee would start looking at that line and saying, you know, this mark here, it's actually a pretty wide mark. We've been given this law, but let's, let's get it down finer than that so we can know exactly what's right and what's wrong. We'll just get rid of that. And we get it even finer, or they might try and get it finer still. And they'll try and narrow it down exactly what can I do to be right and get on the right side. And that's a problem. It might not seem like it, but as soon as you start thinking about it, you realise that the righteousness of a Pharisee is the righteousness of a minimalist. See, the question that Pharisees are always asking... Uh, the Pharisee's question is always, what can I do to be this side of the line? I just want to be this side of the line. All I want to do is get there. And how close to there can I get? In fact, how bad can I be? How, not, and how many wrong things can I do and still be on this side of the line? They're trying to work out exactly where that line is and ride it so that they can get away with things, so they can do the be righteous, be counted as right, while actually not having to do as much as they have, well, getting away with as little as they can. See, the Pharisees care about the law because the law shows the Pharisee what they can get away with, and they're all about it, all about minimizing righteousness. And we're the same, aren't we? We know that the speed limit on a given road is 70, but I know that the police probably have a bit of leeway and I probably won't get pulled over unless I'm going more than 70. Ooh. I don't know what's happening. Um, more than 75. And really, I read somewhere that maybe the speed cameras have like a three degree, three kilometer an hour point of difference. So I might be able to get away with 78. That's the way I tend to think. I try not to drive that way, but it's the way my mind wants to go. I want to get away with things. Or you're on a diet and you think, well, it's okay to have a broken bit of biscuit because the calories leak out of that, so it doesn't count. <laughs> you know the thinking, and whatever your example, you probably do the same thing. But the problem with legalism, always trying to keep the law, is that it inevitably leads to minimalism. We know exactly, we want to know exactly what we can get away with. And that's the righteousness of the Pharisees. But Jesus' way, Jesus' way is different, so different. His is the way of saying, that's good, how much good can you do? How far that way can you go is the way of, not minimal, but maximal righteousness. He would turn it around and go the other way entirely. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 are famous verses. If you know, most of you, or many of you probably will know the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I went to Sunday school. But the bit that's often left out of the end of that verse is against these things 
There is no law. Can you find a law in the laws of the Bible or even the laws of Australia against patience? How patient do you have to be before it comes? That's illegal, you've gone too far being patient. <laughs> or what about generosity? How, now, where is the line where you can't be more generous than that? What about peace? How much peace is illegal? See, when you're trying to max more righteousness, when you're trying to go that far as far as you can, you're not even going to worry about the law, are you? Because it's not going to be anywhere near it. You're going to be way over there. Christians don't have to live by the law because Jesus came and he fulfilled it. He kept it all on our behalf. He died to take our penalty for breaking the law. So that means we can't get condemned. There is no punishment left for us for if we broke it. And more than that, when Jesus rose again and ascended, he sent his spirit to help his followers to live righteously. And so as Christians, we follow that, not the law. See, you want to be more righteous than a Pharisee? A Pharisee always seeing how evil he can be without being evil, how bad he can be without being bad. But if you're a Christian, if you have God's spirit, then you're not trying to avoid being bad, you're pushing the limits of being good. How can I do more? How far can I go in striving to hold back, to, to, sorry, to go, go beyond? The only thing holding us back is the, the old habits of our sinful nature. If you're living Jesus' way, you are li- leading the righteousness of the Pharisees in your dust. But if that's so, what is the purpose of the law? Why do we even have it anymore? Why didn't Jesus abolish it if we're not to live by it anymore? Well, there's several good reasons we have the Old Testament law. The Bible talks about it. It shows us what God is like, the kind of things he cares about. It shows us what we're like and our need for someone to save us. They give us it gives us a lot of context to better understand what Jesus is talking about. And it acts as a guard for young Christians so they can uh, not you know, make too many big mistakes as we are working and growing in how to live following Jesus. But importantly, the Lord tells you when you are not looking at Jesus. I remember learning to drive. Uh, I was never uh, never particularly a good driver, and when learning to drive, um, my big concern was that I wouldn't hit anything. That's probably a very valid concern. Uh, but, so what I would do is I would try and watch the curb curb on the side of the road and make sure I didn't hit that because if I didn't go over that I probably wouldn't hit anything else. Uh, and you probably know what happens if as you drive you watch the curb. You inevitably drift closer and closer to it. Where you're watching is where you go and I think the law often works as a curb. When we're watching the law, if as a Christian we're living our life following that we end up drifting closer and closer to it, trying not to cross it desperately, but always going towards it. Jesus would have us live a different way by looking instead of at the curve at where we're going. Instead of watching that, watching our destination, 
looking as far ahead on the road as you can, so you know, and then you'll automatically go that way. Looking to him who hears what he lives, how he lives, what he's got for us, looking forward to heaven as we go to be with him. Driving that way will we'll never get the curve. We won't even have to worry about the curve. I rarely worry about the curve now because I'm usually looking where I'm trying to go and I almost never hit it. Almost. <laughs> How do you understand the law? Sorry. How do you understand things like even the Ten Commandments? Or well, for Christians, that good guides, that curbs for us. If I murder someone, I've known I've gone the wrong way. I'm probably not living the loving way that Jesus wants me to. And that curve should warn me, hey, I am way off course. See, the Ten Commandments are part of the same legal system that was completed in Christ. So, I don't try to live by them. I'll watch out for them. But I don't go to bed at night and think, was I a good Christian? Well, did I murder anyone? No. No, I didn't. Well, no. <laughs> I did leave someone in a bloody mess, but I didn't murder them, so I'm fine. No, no, instead, I'm one of the first men to think, tomorrow, how can I be more loving to people? How can I actually live that way? See, the Old Testament is there to point us to Jesus. So, you need church. Look to Jesus. Look to how he lives to work out how to live. To the things he said. Don't minimalize the law, maximize it. And that attitude, maximal righteousness versus minimal requirement, will make so much difference to your life. It'll change the way you think about things. It'll make all the difference in the world. It might lead you to ask, well, where can I be more loving this week? How can I be more kind to my parents? What can I do to be more patient with my brother? How can I have more self-control with my sister? What can I do to be unexpectedly generous to my classmates on Tuesday? How will I excel at peace at home next weekend? And not just looking at the way we often look at, okay, well, this is where I often stuff up, this is where I usually make mistakes. Can I encourage you to try something a bit different? Rather than only focusing, and so it's worth looking at the areas we stuff up in, but think about where you're actually strong. Obviously, within humility, but some things you're doing well as a Christian, push those further. Grow even more in those things, whether that's love or joy or peace or patience or one of that many other things that Jesus asks us to do. How can you do that even better this week? Because if you do, if you do, imagine what would happen. If we, as a church, lived as Christians, not Pharisees, not just avoiding doing right, but striving, sorry, avoiding doing wrong, but striving to do right, how different would that righteousness look? How much would it stand out? 
how much would people notice, even ask? That might give us a chance to point them to Jesus too. Lord God, help us to have righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees. Righteousness that doesn't look to just getting over the line, but seeing how much good we can do serving you. Help us not to be worried about the law, but excited about Jesus and living like him. May we honour him in the way we live this week.